All right, uh, where are you at? Are you in Jeremiah chapter 2? When you get there, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Jeremiah chapter 2. And tonight, we're going to read verses 26, 27, and 28. So I'll just read those three. That's our text. That's our outline. Each verse is going to be a point. So uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 26, 27, 28. God says, as the thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings, their princes, and their priests, and their prophets, saying to a stock, thou art my father, and to a stone, thou hast brought me forth. For they have turned their back unto me, and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise, and save us. But where are thy gods that thou hast made thee? Let them arise, if they can save thee in the time of thy trouble. For according to the the number of thy cities are thy gods, O Judah. May God bless his word. Let's bow in prayer. And I want to also remind you this morning, we mentioned during Bible study, that I want you to be praying for the King family, a family from Bible Baptist in Westchester, family that goes back to many of our uh, early days as Christians, my days growing up, uh, the King family was involved in the Boy Scouts troop that I was in uh, before I came to know the Lord. And then when I got saved, I found out they were saved. And uh, Mr. King's grandson, uh, is, is uh, he may have passed away. Jim, did you get any word on that? No. no. So he was on life support. They were going to take him off life support. He's 30, Jim? Okay. Okay, so you might, and, and he's 30 or about in his 30s? Okay. All right, and his name's Billy, so let's, let's bow in prayer for, for him as well. Father, we're so grateful that you are a, uh, an ever-present help in trouble. And Lord, we certainly have enough trouble and enough times to remind us that without you we can do nothing. We thank you for those times, Father. Uh, forgive us for those times when we should be realizing that how much we need you and, and uh, we don't see how how desperately, how poor and miserable and blinded, wretched and naked that we are, and and we go it on our own. But Father, there's folks that need you right now, desperately, and uh, we pray for the King family, that you would just intervene. We pray for a miracle, uh, for for the healing of this young man, um, Billy. We just pray for his dad, that you would comfort him and um, Lord, I, I love that family and um, so many precious memories. I pray for young Billy that you would please spare his life. I pray for Bill and Wanda and, and just all the family that you would minister to them, for Danny and for Tracy and for Mr. King. And we just pray, give give that family to you and pray that they would sense that many of, of your people are praying, that, that God's people all over are lifting them up and they would sense that. Uh, Lord, I pray for Joanne Tomkowitz. Ed Tomkowitz, I pray, Father, that you would just sustain her and allow her to bounce back. Uh, Father, we pray for strength. We pray that you'd help her body to to get nourishment and for her to feel stronger and not so very, very weak. And, uh, Lord, we ask that you would extend her life, if it be your will. We thank you that she knows Jesus Christ as her Savior and then, Father, I pray for my folks, especially my dad. I pray for healing in his mind. And I just pray, uh, thank you for my folks. Thank you for 
the blessing of their love for one another. And I just pray that you'd bless and minister to their needs. And Lord, we pray that in all the things and all the suffering in everyone in our church family that you would you would be glorified. We pray for Peg Willie as she gets new, used to this new environment, her new home, that you would comfort her. Pray that her presence in the facility would be a blessing to David. And we just commit them to you. Uh, and we pray for the family, Father, that um, is a way that you, just that you would bless them. And um, thank you for them. We ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be But isn't that, wasn't that the song that the band played when the Titanic went down? Anybody know that? Was it near? Uh, if you know the story, in 1912 when the Titanic sunk, the band uh, played as, the, as the, the ship was sinking and they played one of the famous hymns. And it might have had the same name as this, but been a different version, but uh, that always gets me. You know, can you imagine there was four or five, six players, violins, and they were just playing as the ship is sinking, as pandemonium is going. That was their attempt to calm people. Um, you know, what an amazing thing. What an amazing thing. There's some great stories that came out of that. Um, you remember the one that I, I put it on the back with the one person that uh, went around presenting the gospel before... Did any of you read that? That's just awesome. It's a fascinating story, isn't it? It's, you know, it's a human tragedy when you think of how much loss of life. Um, but you think of what happened in Syria and Turkey this past week, and you think, of, last I heard was over, over 41,000 people perished. Um, you know, you never know uh, when God is going to call us home. So we are in Je- uh, Jeremiah, so take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah. Thank you for being here tonight. Love to be able to preach to someone, and I've got someone to preach to tonight, a couple someones, a bunch of someones. So tonight is part 15, as we go through Jeremiah, we're in chapter 2, verses 26 through 28, and uh, just to, um, the title of tonight's message is actually based on a hymn, uh, Abide With Me, and it has to do with these three verses. Uh, The song Abide With Me has a phrase, when other helpers fail. And comforts flee. Help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. That is a prayer to God. And uh, Israel or Judah would get to a point where they would finally say that to God. Uh, Because, but they would only say, they would only come to God and say, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. They'd only cry out for God's help. Because all other helpers had failed. And the helpers that they were seeking were their idols, the idols of the Canaanites. And the Lord has uh, some fun with them, if I can say it, you know, fun in that uh, he kind of mocks their gods, much in the same way that Elijah mocked the gods of Baal, uh, the, you know, Baal, which were the same Canaanite gods that Judah was enticed with here. In fact, we'll look at that in 1 Kings chapter 18 in a little bit. But the title went helpers, uh, other helpers. And unfortunately, Israel was at a time where uh, they were enticed by the gods, small g, of the the Canaanites, Asherah, Baal, uh, a bunch of gods. They had so many gods. In fact, he makes reference to that uh, as far as the numbers of their cities. And then later in Jeremiah, I think it's chapter 30 somewhere, he again says this same phrase, and then he says, uh, even as many streets as you have. So apparently there were so many different gods They had a God for everything. And that was an insult to Yahweh. That was an insult that the one that he covenanted with, 
the one that he had rescued, that he had delivered uh, and brought through the, you know, out of slavery and through the wilderness uh, and then entered into covenant with them that they would forsake him. Uh, And you see this coming out. So the title of the message is Other Helpers. And uh, chapter 2, just to go back, look at a couple verses to get the theme here with what we pick up with. In verse 4 and 5, look at Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. The prophet says, Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus said, now remember he's talking to the ten tribes of Judah, but because the two tribes, northern tribes of Israel, had already, they're already in captivity, they've already been conquered by Assyria, but he's still including them, and he's referring to all of Israel as one, sometimes Judah, sometimes Israel. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me, and have walked after vanity? That's a reference to the idols, that they they left God. And he felt abandoned. Uh, He was, you know, he had entered in, given them the privilege of walking with him, and they abandoned him. And they've walked after vanity and are become vain. And many again, uh, in the Hebrew, the word for vanity and the word for vain uh, is the same synonym as for the word Baal. How appropriate. Because Baal was nothing. You know, and, and idols are nothing, as Paul would say in the New Testament. So this, this is their charge. This is their, God's charge against them. Verse 11, Jeremiah 2.11. Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory, which was him, for that which doth not profit. And then finally, verse 13, For my people have committed two evils. He's still still preaching the same theme. My people have committed two evils. First, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And number two, they have hewed or cut them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So not only have they forsaken the fountain of living waters, the true source to, to, to quench their deepest longing, but they've also gone somewhere uh, to a place that it, it's like trying to drink waters from a broken cistern, idols, false gods that can never, never satisfy, never quench. There's no water. There's no ability to hold water. Uh, idols are nothing. And so he continues that theme. And now we get to verse 26. And he says, As the thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings, their princes, and their priests, and their prophets. And then he goes on with that. He's talking about this time when they will be ashamed, saying, and in other words, they're going to be ashamed of what they did of the idolatry they pursued, of who it was that they looked to for help. You know, again, other helpers. Who did Israel look for uh, to help them out of the fix that they got themselves into? And it was the gods of the Canaanites. Uh, But he says again in verse 26, they're going to be ashamed. So three things we're going to look at tonight, one from each verse. Verse 26, uh, Israel coming to the end of themselves. Verse 27, Israel coming to the end of their idols. They're going to realize that their idols really weren't available to them when they needed them. Don't you hate that? And then 28, verse 28, 
coming to the end of their futility. And um, they're going to eventually turn to God. Uh, and they'll do that uh, when they are in bondage in Babylon. So first con- coming to the end of themselves, again, verse 26, as the thief is ashamed when he is found out, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings, their princes, their priests, and their prophets. The thief is only ashamed when he is found out. That's the, the point, and as has been true down through the ages, uh, the thief, the, the bad guy, the criminal, usually uh, the shame comes, the regret is in getting caught and being punished, not necessarily the crime itself. Uh, and, and this is true with so many sins. Uh, it is the repercussions, it is the consequences uh, that will often bring tears. You know, Paul talks about uh, the sorrow of the world versus or the, the, there's genuine repentance and there's godly repentance and then there's repentance of the world. And he, he talks about that, I believe it's in Corinthians, where um, you know, there's going to be people that will show signs. We call them crocodile tears, you know, the fake tears apparently, uh, because they got caught, because they're very upset. They're really not happy of, because they're having to suffer the consequences of their actions, but they're not really repentant. And so Israel is going to face the music, as it were. They're going to be ashamed. But just like a thief, uh, when they finally start reaping and Babylon does come and bring them into captivity, um, they're not going to be happy about it. And they're not going to, at least initially, they're not going to really understand uh, what God was punishing them for. And so they're sorry they got caught, as it were. Paul would talk about that uh, to the believers in Romans 6, verse 21. Again, challenging them about their life, and, and especially their life before Christ. And he said, What fruit had ye then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Sometimes there is the reminder, the needs to be the reminder, that when we pursue anything but God, when we pursue the world, when we pursue sinful pleasure, when we pursue idols, and by the way, keep in mind folks, we're looking down on Israel, and before you get so high and mighty, or we get so high and mighty and say, what fools! How could they worship false gods? Ashtaroth, and they're going to talk about the, you know, the wood and the stone and they, the graven images that they would, that they would worship, and we think, oh, how could they do that? I want to remind you, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul tells the, the New Testament church, he says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Then he starts listening, listing the things that are part of the flesh. Fornication, adultery, lasciviousness. Then he says this, And covetousness, which is idolatry. So we look at those graven images and think, that's idolatry. And wow, how could anybody look to pray to a statue or pray to a stone or a tree and think that that's going to deliver them? But folks, when you think about it, idolatry is so much bigger than you know, a graven image. And graven images are foolish. God says, who then will you liken unto me? How can you carve, you know, I, how can you 
carve something and worship it uh, because you can't you can't do that with me and and clearly God will does not he he condemns worshiping graven images even if they're supposed to represent him in some way clearly it is so clearly articulated the second commandment in fact you know what let me look at it i want to get the wording that's all around it i know all of you have the 10 commandments memorized right especially from exodus Right, I think I hear a chorus of, oh, yeah, absolutely. But God says this, the second commandment. He says, I am the Lord thy God. And notice, because this is the theme throughout the Old, Old Testament to Israel. I am the Lord thy God, Israel, he's saying, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And remember, all through Jeremiah, we see this Hebrew word rescue, deliver. I deliver you, I rescued you. Keeps bringing that up. And here he does. I'm the one which brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. All of those, what I just read, was one commandment. We summarize it. Don't make any graven images. You know, there's entire denominations, one main one I know of, uh, as a kid, we memorized the Ten Commandments. And then when I got saved and I read my Bible... I thought, wait a minute, those aren't the Ten Commandments. Do you know that they actually have a, an altered view and they, they remove the Second Commandment? That, the church I grew up in. <laughs> Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. It's so clear. But we were not taught that. I think what they do is they take the first one and break it into two or they take the third one. Uh, but, and it's in their Bibles. All their Bibles. That's anyway, that's another thing. But all those all the words that I just read there, you know, God takes it very personal when somebody is an 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 idolater, because it means that God is being replaced. Now, we can again we can condemn Israel and look at them and say, How could they how could they take if you've archaeology, we can actually see they have statues and and engraven images of Ashtaroth and Baal, and we can say, how could they bow down and worship that? How could they think this thing can deliver them? How foolish! But folks, anything that takes the place of God in our life, remember, remember Colossians 3, and covetousness, which is idolatry. In other words, when things take the place of God, it's idolatry. We have all kinds of idols today. Anything can be an idol if it has taken priority in your life. Do you have any idols in your life? What has become important to you? What has become more important to you than God? That's an idol. And it can be anything. And what might not be an idol to one person can be an idol to someone else. And so here they are coming to the end of themselves they're finally going to be ashamed. Uh, but I remind you that just because someone's ashamed 
Just because someone's sad that they got caught does not mean that they are repentant. I remind you of um, the illustration that I just first read a couple years ago and um, a book that has come to mean a lot to me that has helped me tremendously and I'm still working on applying it because I I knew it's what I needed to read. And it was about uh, the guy, uh, in fact, I think Bill was the name, was just a fictitious person. I'll just read part of it. You'll remember this because you've heard me say it. I probably used this like 15 times. The parents of a 25-year-old man came to see me. This was a a Bible counselor, Christian counselor. Came to see me with a common request. They wanted me to fix their son, Bill. Now, I've had people over the years that have come to me, wives wanting me to fix their husbands, husbands wanting me to fix their wives, and so forth. And... um, so I asked where Bill was, and they said, oh, he didn't want to come. So why, I asked. Well, he doesn't think he has a problem, they replied. Maybe he's right, I said, to their surprise. Tell me about it. So they talked about it. And they, they basically shared how uh, this is one of those things. That, and as a parent, it's such a challenge that um, sometimes we need to let our children fall. Sometimes we need to uh, allow them to experience the consequences of their action. And this was a, a parents that didn't do that. They enabled their, their son, in, in their love for their son and their desire to help their son, they ended up making it easy for him to not be responsible. And so at the end of all the story, he says, and I love this again, you know that I love this. They talked for a while and I responded, I think your son is right. He doesn't have a problem. You could have mistaken their expression for a snapshot. They stared at me in disbelief for a full minute. I'd love to be there. Finally, the father said, Did I hear you right? You don't think he has a problem? That's correct, I said. He doesn't have a problem. You do. I've never said that to anyone. I can't imagine that. Uh, But he said, you do. He said, he "He can pretty much do whatever he wants, no problem. You pay, you fret, you worry, you plan, you exert energy to keep him going. He doesn't have a problem because you've taken it from him. Those things should be his problem, but as it now stands, they are yours. And then he said this great phrase, which I I, I wish I'd said this in a million different scenarios. Uh, Would you like for me to help him to have some problems? Uh, I'm I'm the kind of person that I want to help people to not have problems. And I know that I've been an enabler. I I mean, this, this is me. I was reading an illustration about me, you know, and I needed this. And I love this. Would you like me to help him to have some problems? That's what, that's what Jeremiah, that's what God is saying to Israel. It's like, you need to have some problems, Israel. <laughs> you know, you're, you're looking all the wrong ways. And guess what? I'm going to give you some problems. I'm going to allow, going to help you to have some problems. And they would have a major problem called Babylon. And we're going to be talking about that for, for months to come. Uh, and all that, so many interesting things. But... Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 18. Let's see this, the showdown. This was uh, earlier when there was the northern kingdom, the two tribes of Israel, and one of the prophets was Elijah. 1 Kings chapter 18. And what, I, lo- I just love this story. Now, story, not story. What is it? I love this event. I love this event. That means it really happened. It's not a story, it's not a fable. It is an event. And Elijah, there was the three years of, uh, of famine. Uh, the king uh, was Ahab, a very wicked king. And um, it comes to a head in, in, let's see, in verse 21. 
So 1 Kings 18.21, this is what starts us out. This is an amazing verse. And Elijah came unto all the people. They're all gathered now at Mount Carmel for the showdown between, between Yahweh and the prophets of Baal and Baal. And Elijah came unto all the people and he said, How long halt ye? Now halt, today to us, means what? Stop. So it's it, the picture, it's, it's a small thing, but how long halt ye between two opinions? It wasn't that they would come to one opinion and stop before they could make a commitment to it, and then they'd go to another one and then stop before they could make it. The word halt is an old English word which when translated in 1611 literally meant to be crippled or to hobble. Remember Jesus healed the halt. He healed the stop? No, he healed people that had a limp. And this is what he's saying. Elijah is saying, how long will you limp between two, two gods? Again, how long between two opinions? They were like, you know, going from Jehovah to Baal to Jehovah. They were hobbling back and forth is what they were doing. He says, how long halt you between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. If Baal is God, the, the impression the, it, it implies, if Baal is God, then follow him. That He is challenging them. Make a decision. Make a commitment. Who are you going to serve? And do you notice their response? This was the, this is probably one of those times he just wept openly, the weeping prophet. The people answered him not a word. You know, I can just imagine Jeremiah's frustration. Hello, anybody out there? Can't you hear me? You know, he's he's challenging it. Make a decision. Nothing. And then you have the showdown. Let's just jump in real quick here. Then Elijah then said Elijah unto the people, Even I only remain a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are four hundred and fifty men. Let them therefore give us two bullocks. And let them choose one bullock for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on wood and put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock and lay it on wood and put no fire under it. And call ye, he's now talking to the 450 prophets of Baal, call ye on the name of your gods and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. Oh, this is, this is coming on. He's telling them, listen. You need to make a choice. If you're so impressed with Baal, then stop hobbling between him and Jehovah. Just go to Baal. If you're going to serve the Lord, Yahweh, then, then go full bore. and Just make a commitment to him. And they couldn't do it. So he said, okay, you prophets, you get a bull, you put fire under it, and then you pray to your God. You pray, 450, you pray to your Baal, or Baal's plural, and then I'll, I'll take the other bullock, whichever one you don't pick. You got the choice. I'm going to put a fire under it, and then I'll call my God to consume that. We'll see who's the real God. And um, verse 24, And call ye upon the name of your gods, Baal is plural, and I will call on the name of the Lord. Um, and the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. He's saying, okay, you're not going to make a choice. I'm going to force your hand. Because... Because God is not, he's not satisfied with just standing there when he wants you to not be on the fence. 
Verse 25, And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves and dress it first, for ye are many. Call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under it. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it, and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us! But, this will surprise you, there was no voice nor any that answered. Oh, surprise, surprise. You ever cry out to, to nothing and wonder why nothing doesn't respond? And they leaped upon the altar which was made. They're getting desperate. And again, I love this. It came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them. And he said, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is talking or is he, or he is pursuing or he's on a journey or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awake. Be awakened. This is mockery. And he's not, he's not apologizing because the, the pure idea of idolatry is repulsive and moronic. It's ridiculous to think that these false, this false gods, this Baal, which is nothing, they cried aloud. Look at verse 28. They got desperate. They cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets till the blush gushed out upon them. Wow, for hours. 450, it must have been an amazing sight. You know, they're crying out to bail their gods. They're starting getting more desperate as time goes on. And it came to pass, verse 29, when midday was past, and they prophesied until the time of the offering and the evening sacrifice, that there was neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded. Now we'll, in a minute we're going to go back to Jeremiah and we're going to see that Israel uh, tried to get help in their time of desperation. For the, the same thing as these prophets. They tried to, with their wooden graven images and their stone idols of the Canaanites. They tried to get relief from them. And just like this, nothing. And Elijah said unto, the peop- unto all the people, verse 30, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the Lord, oh, the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. He's going back to his covenant. And it, he's picking choose twelve stones Because Israel was a chosen people. They were his covenant people. This was the thing. And this is what Israel did not get. Israel or Judah. They were a covenant people. Reserved by God and unto God. And the fact that they had forsaken him to go to other gods was the biggest offense possible. Verse 32. And with stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. Now this is unusual because the other one didn't do a trench. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid them on the wood. And here's the twist. And he said, fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Now, I think you're all familiar with um, the physics of, you know, if you're going to light a fire, you're going to cook something, you, you don't want it to be soaked in water. I guess he didn't know that. No, he knew it. Look at verse 34. And he said, do it the second time. I love this. They literally just just poured eight barrels of water over the sacrifice. And then they did it a third time. And they, 
and um, do it a third time. And they did it the third time, verse 35. And the water ran round about the altar, and he filled the trench also with the water. Wow. The odds are going against Elijah, aren't they? And in the evening, and it came to pass at the time of the offering and the evening sacrifice, that Elijah the prophet came near and said, starts to open his mouth, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then, not hours later, then, the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. I love this. I would have loved to have been on Mount Carmel. Wouldn't you have loved to have seen that? I would have loved to have seen it. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is the God. Finally. They finally put God on the throne of their heart. They finally gave Him the credit that He deserves. Now folks, there is coming a day. The ultimate Mount Carmel when on Judgment Day, the ba- you read Revelation, it's such a build-up. Who is worthy? And, and Jesus Christ is going to be magnified, and He alone is worthy to receive honor and glory, and it is just going to be a great time where every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess. Sadly, though, it will be from many a too-late, humbling, because they rejected Jesus Christ. Now let's go back to Jeremiah. And so we see uh, they've come to the uh, end of their idols now. Verse 27. Look at Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 27. Verse 26 says, um, They're going to be ashamed. All the house of Israel will be ashamed. They, their kings, their priests, their, pri- their uh, princes, their priests, and their prophets, saying to a stock. Here's what the shame is going to be. Saying to a stock... Thou art my father. Stock is a piece of wood. It's a tree. And to a stone. Thou hast brought me forth. In other words, you're my mother. For they've turned their back unto me and not their faces. Now let's stop right there. Uh, In fact, he would accuse them. We're going to see way down in Jeremiah 32. Listen to this one because he's saying the same thing. This is a theme in Jeremiah's ministry. Jeremiah 32 and verse 33 He says, they have turned unto me the back and not the face. Though I taught them rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not hearkened to receive instruction. Get a little bit more later on when we read that verse. But it's the same idea. You didn't come to me. I invested in you. Not only did I rescue you, but again, I, um, I taught them rising early and teaching them. They've not hearkened to my instruction. I have been totally rejected, God is saying. And he took that very personal. And so they say to the stock, literally a tree, thou art my father. Some believe, as they've studied this, as you know, much of, um, of this, this whole passage, in fact, is a poem, uh, which seems to be 
put together from a couple different poems from different times in Jeremiah's ministry. Um, but some believe that the words here that are quoted from Israel saying to a stock, thou art my father, they seem to be an actual quotation from the hymns of the idolatrous ritual. So he may be just taking their hymns that they used to, to say to Baal and to Ashtaroth, uh, these things. So um, let me just read a couple things here. The tree was a wooden idol representing Ashtaroth and the, le- the leading female Canaanite deity. The stone represented Baal, the leading male Canaanite deity. Uh, One source, talking about archaeology, says, These stone pillars have been found in excavations in Palestine. All that remains of the wooden poles is a post hole or post holes all over the place in which the rotted timber has left a different colored soil. There's enough archaeological evidence for these to indicate widespread usage. So all throughout Palestine you see uh, first of all, you see these stone idols, and then you see what was left of the trees that were worshipped. And um, another, another source says there's a strong satire here. For it is the female symbol, a tree, that is called the father, and the male symbol, which is the stone, that is called the mother, or you gave me birth. Israel was confused about what she wor- was worshipping when she ascribed to the gods of fertility her very existence. Uh, so it, it, the whole thing is a mockery. And this, the God of heaven, when he exhorted Israel way back in Deuteronomy, before all this took place, he said this, Deuteronomy thirty-two thirty-six, For the Lord shall judge his people and repent himself for his servants, when he seeth that their power is gone and there is none shut up or left. And he shall say, Where are their gods, their rock in whom they trusted? It is interesting that it is only because God has invested in them, because God loves him, because they are a covenant people, that this matters to him. Uh, and he, he delivered them. Uh, this is, it, he is just so insulted because of his investment and his care for his people. And, you know, that verse later on down in, in Jeremiah 32 that, He's like, he, he represents himself as a teacher. I got up early in the morning and I instructed you. Um, we'll talk about that down the road, but uh, it, it's something that I can relate to and hopefully you can relate to in some ways. You know, when you invest in someone's life, parents, you've done it to your child, your children, uh, pastors do it. Uh, when you invest in people's lives, um, there is a level of expectation um, in other words, we're not just we're not just being parents for the for our own health, right? I mean, you, you don't invest in your kids because you're like, I don't care how you turn out. You know, we love our kids, and and a pastor loves his congregation, and there's expectation with that. Um, you walk through. I remember pa- my pastor would always say, "You really don't become a pastor until you see their their kids born and you bury their dead," uh, and, and that is so true. What a privilege it is to walk with people through all the stages of life. It is an honor. And um, I remember I've come to learn and appreciate because not everybody, you know, some people come here and they've already had other pastors. And I've come to realize that it's almost like a sacred sacred trust. Uh, we, had, we inherited a church called Inheritance Baptist. 
uh, where, where Pastor Alzito brought his parents and a group, small group, uh, and they merged, they came into our church. And uh, I appreciated Pastor Zito and the influence that he had. And of course, we grew to love every one of them. We inherited Inheritance Baptist. Uh, but I, I, I remember just, I will always have a great sense of appreciation, not just for him leading his flock so that I, they could be under my care and that every one of them had been precious. We even still have some. We had Howard with us this morning and Gene Turlecki just called Noreen. And, you know, these are people that are very precious and have been very precious. Of course, I've mentioned Pastor Solomon Joa. Um, you know, we have James, we have so many people. By the way, one of our leaders has sends his regard, I'm going to be cryptic here, from afar uh, God is blessing, and um, he just wanted me to let you know that he loves you all. He had a great time at the Calvary Baptist where they're at uh, today, um, so you'll be praying they'll be back eventually. Anyway, um, so I've come to appreciate, and I think I know when, when God is saying, you know, I instructed you, and, and you know, there's an investment there. And I remember when we first started the church, you, you all have heard the story that there was a, a dear older lady, and I love this family, this couple, but she um, she could not really control her tongue. And when she first started coming, she was bad-mouthing her previous pastor, who is still in the ministry today at Calvary Independent Baptist Church in Morton. And I'd never met John Cartwright, didn't know him from Adam. I'd heard him before, heard of him before. But man, she painted a bad picture. She had, and I remember initially thinking, wow. This John Cartwright, he must be pretty bad. But then after a while, I got to see her, and I got to say, you know, maybe this Pastor Cartwright isn't so bad. And eventually, I came to realize that, you know what, Pastor Cartwright is awesome. He's awesome. And, um, and unfortunately, I did not do what I now do. You know, and I should have, when I found out where they were from, I should have gotten on the phone and called Pastor Cartwright. And I do that now. Because I don't want to disrespect uh, the pastors that have invested in the people's lives that come here. When the carpenters came here, Leah and Jason, uh, I called their previous pastor just to, you know, just to let them know these folks are coming to our church. And, um, and I remember, in fact, he... He sent me a text later that week. He said, thanks for your call today. He said, I appreciate your ethics on when people go from one church to the next. He says, few men up here have done that. And I can relate to that. Now, thankfully, most pastors in this area, Pastor Cartwright being one of them and so many other pastors, they have pastoral ethics. And, and I'll get a call or I'll give a call. When someone goes from one church to another, it's just a sign of respect not for the person so much, but for the ministry. You're going you're gonna to pastor these precious people that came from another church. You better show some respect for that man's ministry of whoever it was, but not everybody does that. And, and, and I know, that's, that, that's an insult. Now, real quickly, we want to go to verse 28. Uh, so we have uh, the first point coming to the end of themselves, verse 26. Coming to the end of their idols, verse 27. Coming to the end of their futility, verse 28. Verse 28, but, but where are thy gods that thou hast made thee? Let them arise if they can save, save thee. In fact, you know what, because of time, I'm, so let me go back. Um, 
Look at verse 27. Saying, To a stock thou art my father, to a stone thou hast brought me forth, for they have turned their back unto me and not their face. But look at this last statement. But in their time of trouble, they will say, Arise and save us. In other words, they're going to realize the futility. Uh, they're going to realize that other helpers, their idols, were worthless. And then they're going to turn to God. They'll finally turn to Him and say, Help us. And His response is verse 28. Where are thy gods that thou hast made thee? Let them arise, if they can save thee in the time of thy trouble. For according to the number of thy cities are thy gods. You have so many gods. Where are they? Why, you, why don't you just go to them? There's some mockery here. Do you hear this? He, he's like, oh, you, oh, now you come to me. Now you come to me. Why don't you go to your false gods? Why can't they help you? And again, there's some sarcasm here. But you know, it's interesting, and I'll close with this. I know we're out of time now, but um, it's almost like Israel. And, and I find this true today, that, that there's people that seem to, to, it's like they can't wait to talk to God. Like God, they're, they're really upset with God, and they've got some questions for him. I remember my mom, before I even knew what this phrase meant, she would say this, and whenever I heard this, I knew I was in trouble. Probably the first time she said it, I might have thought, oh, this sounds good. She would say, Stevie, she'd say, I have a bone to pick with you. You know. Now, maybe the first time I'm like, oh, is there some leftover chicken or something? You know. Uh, but I came to realize that when she said, I have a bone to pick with you, I was in trouble. You know? So I did not like hearing that phrase. You know, there's a lot of God, people that it seem to say to God, I have a bone to pick with you. Like, God, I can't, you, you know, you, I got some questions for you. And I close with this. In Job 38, you can turn there if you want, but in Job chapter 38, as you know, God did some things in Job's life that, um, you know, caused him to really question. Uh, he held, he maintained his integrity. He did not charge God foolishly. He didn't blame God, but he certainly couldn't understand what was going on. And, and he just, all he wanted throughout the whole book of Job is he just wanted an audience with God. It's almost like he's saying, not like he had an attitude, like i got a bone to pick with you, but I just need to know what you're doing. And I like the way uh, one, one writer of a book put it. He said, uh, it was a commentary on the book of Job, and he said this, The comfort we find in the book of Job does not come from finding out why we suffer, but rather it comes it, the, the comfort we find is in coming face to face, as did Job with a holy and just God. Job's servants were murdered, his possessions stolen, his children killed, and his health taken away. Job lost everything but his faith in God and a stubborn desire to have a personal audience with the Almighty. He wanted to ask the Lord why such terrible suffering had come his way, to talk face to face with his Creator. When he finally got that personal audience... God didn't answer even one of Job's questions. This is significant. In fact, he had 70 questions of his own to ask Job. And then I love what the commentator wrote. He said, but Job wasn't disappointed. Neither will we be disappointed if we take the time to study Job's story of grief and loss and God's response in this suffering man. And in chapter 38, beginning of verse 1, is when God finally speaks and begins a flurry 
70 questions and he just I mean it is rapid fire when God finally speaks he speaks and Job isn't getting his two cents in he's just sitting there listening to a barrage of questions and they go like this just get the feel for it, the first few verses Job 38 1 then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. God's saying, uh, I'm the one that asks the questions. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou uh, can, hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures there? And he just goes basically establishing the fact that, that Job, I created the world. Everything. Where were you when I did that? He was just putting Job in his place and saying, listen, I'm God. I've got everything under control. I am in charge. And he, he just, that's what Job needed to hear. He needed to be reminded that, that, as Ron Hamilton would say in the song, God never moves without purpose or plan when trying his servant and molding a man. And that's true for Job. God, God was not punishing Job. God was not moving without purpose. Of course, we, oh, we have a blessing to have the book of Job and see what's going on behind the scenes. Job would have loved that. Now, we, we don't have that book about our own lives, but we got the book of Job, and we know how God works. So when we don't understand what's going on, we can fall back on, you know what, God's in charge. He does right. And to, to, to quote Abraham, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And he will. Let's pray. Father, help us to learn from Judah, the people of Israel, in their flounderings and their forsaking you, and looking to vanity, looking to idols, looking to things that could never satisfy. Uh, They had forsaken you. And Father, there's a lesson in here for every professing Christian Uh, who has forsaken you uh, and gone to the world and attempted to be satisfied, uh, drinking in broken cisterns, and there's, there's no water there. If we forsake the fountain of living water, we can never have our spiritual thirst um, quenched. Father, I pray that you'd remind us of how important it is for us to just have a relationship with you, that you, you pursue us, and Father, that we... Uh, we should be so blessed to just walk with you. And I pray, Father, that we would be satisfied with our God, that we would not forsake you and turn to anything else that would be empty and end up empty like Israel. So we ask for your help. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Let's, take your, let's all stand, please. Take your hymn books out.